Bring spring color inside this season with Bear Premium Plus paint, starting at just $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. Add a pop of blue to your kitchen with the Bear exclusive color Arrowhead Lake or a splash of Amazon jungle to your living room. Bring a cool breeze to your bathroom with sea glass or accent your bedroom with sunrise-inspired colors like coral cloud and dark crimson. Let your creativity bloom this spring with Bare Premium Plus paint starting at just $28.98 a gallon at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. The Bloomberg Sustainable Business Summit returns to London on April 25th for a solution-driven look at the sustainable business and finance landscape. Looking at the latest trends in ESG regulations, supply chain innovation and transition finance. Speakers include leaders from CDP, Emirates Environment Group, TNFD, C-Trace, COA and more. Summit advisors include City and Schneider Electric. Visit BloombergLive.com slash SBS 2024 to learn more. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Bloomberg Intelligence Talking Transports podcast. I'm your host, Lee Klaskow, Senior Freight Transportation and Logistics Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, Bloomberg's in-house research arm. We're delighted to have Neil Shelton, GXO's Chief Strategy Officer, as our guest on the podcast. Neil has 25 years experience in the financial industry with companies that include J.P. Morgan Chase, Morgan Stanley, Credit Suisse, Citigroup, and Arthur Anderson. Neil has led several TMT equity research teams to number one external rankings and has been regularly ranked number one for specialist sales by institutional investor and has piloted more than 50 equity and initial public offerings. He holds a degree in industrial economics from the University of Nottingham in Great Britain. Well, Neil, thanks for joining us today. How are you doing? Very good. Uh, Lee, thank you so much for inviting us and uh, congratulations on your new podcast series. It seems fantastically exciting. Yeah, I appreciate that. It, it's, it's been great so far, only getting better by the episode. So, um, you know, GXO, maybe not a household name, but what you do is a household service. So can you give our listeners just an idea of, of what GXO is and, and what is contract logistics? Sure. Um, let's start off on your word service, because that's exactly what we provide to our customers, Lee. Um, we provide a service, a warehousing service for customers across many different verticals, both consumer-focused, industrial, food and beverage, and, and technology verticals, where we provide warehousing services. What does that really mean? We help our customers to drive efficiency, to drive an improved consumer experience, to drive improved inventory position by utilizing technologies available to us and driving an overall solution from that. Our role in that is to provide a service for our customers. So we typically operate under a five-year average duration contract where we help our customers' warehouse operations to become a lot more stable in that overall supply chain and to drive a significant and outsized benefit for them relative to our costs. Right. As I mentioned, GXO is not a household name, at least not yet. I mean, it's a relatively new company. It's a... Maybe not the operations is new, but it's a spinoff from uh, XPO. Can you, can you talk about, you know, you mentioned your customers. Who are your customers? Like what type of companies use GXO or if you're able to mention companies by name? 
Sure. So, I mean, we've, we've, we've publicly highlighted uh, a number of uh, the fantastic partners that we have across consumer verticals such as Nike, such as Inditex, such as H&M, such as Adidas. Uh, in technology, we've highlighted having some phenomenal customers such as Apple and in the industrial space, uh, Boeing. We also recently won our largest ever annual revenue contract uh, in the food retail space uh, with a company, uh, a UK food retailer uh, called Sainsbury. So we serve a, a variety of large blue chip organizations. If you look at our business, we're the largest independent 3PL uh, in the space that we operate in, in, in terms of that warehouse contract logistics. Um, our customers, are, uh, are on the whole, they work with us across multiple sites and, and, and multiple geographies. So uh, over half of our customers work with us across more than one country, which is really, if you like, reinforcing the fact that they're looking increasingly to a scaled operator to help digitalize a, a warehouse environment that has historically been very manually focused uh, and seeking to bring more of those benefits across more of their, their global network. Yeah, and from what I understand, these, these warehouses and fulfillment centers, they're, they run the gamut from extremely high tech fully or fully or closely fully automated to kind of pick and pack manual. Uh, can you just talk about the different kind of facilities that you have and I guess the benefits for a customer um, on, on, on maybe looking at more automated facilities? Yeah, absolutely. So if you look at our, our revenues, Lee, we are what we classify as uh, just over 30 percent uh, highly automated revenues. And, and, and that's the very significant large scale automation bespoke for a customer uh, that can drive tremendous uplift in their business performance. If you include some of the more modular technologies we've been deploying at quite a ferocious rate of late, we're close to 40% of our revenues coming through from some of those more modular technologies. That's things like movable robotics, collaborative robots, goods to person systems, and in some elements too, uh, vision type activities. Our customers are looking to us to deploy these technologies because the overall warehouse environment is very lowly automated. It's only a single digit percentage automated and it's not in many of our customers' wheelhouse strengths to know what is the right technology to solve for their customers. We operate about a thousand sites globally, Lee. If you look at a very large customer, they might have five or six sites spread across the planet. So our ability to drive a solution from knowing what is the right technology that's been tried and tested and driven a tremendous result for the customer is vastly different to what a company might be able to uh, achieve themselves. If you look at the benefits of where we are deploying automation, it's numerous. Yes, everybody focuses on, on efficiency, the cost reduction that an automated warehouse can bring. And we've got examples where we've helped customers to drop the, the variable cost per unit by 60% or in some instances, more than 60% by deploying automation, by driving right. out a lot of repetitive activity, by taking away, if you like, movement that is undertaken by teammates and replacing it with a much less strenuous automated activity. So, you know, in an environment where wage inflation has been relatively persistent, this is very attractive. But the benefits really don't stop there. If you like, what we can drive is bigger outsized benefits for the customer from a number of other effects that automation can bring. For example, we have automated facilities that can drive uh, almost 100% accuracy. Uh, 
one site last month drove a 99.9999% order accuracy. When the customer was doing themselves in-house, that was around a 98.5% order accuracy. The impact for the customer is that they have evaded 30 million returned products through inaccurate shipments, which is a significant benefit in terms of avoiding the cost associated with the return. But for this customer too, when when you take their product out of a temperature controlled environment, there's a greater propensity that it might uh, have to uh, uh, not be reused for, for the next customer. The other key benefit that we're able to bring to customers is by having these highly automated, very predictable solutions for our customers, we're able to help them reduce inventory, free up working capital. And that now today earns a good yield uh, in, in a bank, but at the same time too, helps a, has a positive impact on their overall gross profit margin. If you consider most retailers typically run 30, 40% overstocked come the end of a season, having to discount that um, can be quite painful on, on many customers' gross profit margins. If we are halving or more that overstocking by having this predictable solution where something that arrives at a warehouse door is available for picking and packing within an hour or two, then that has a tremendously upsized benefit for the customer. And that's why our customers are seeking to work increasingly with us. If you look at the economics of warehousing, it's typically about 5% of total product cost. Clearly, depending on the product, it can, it can be higher or lower. Our margin, therefore, is only a few tens of basis points of total product cost, but the impact from the efficiencies, the impact from reducing overstocking, the impact in helping to drive a better overall end customer or consumer experience through higher accuracy, higher velocity, higher uh, uh, predictability, really makes that work with the 3PL very, very attractive for our, our customers. And that, that's why we continue to deepen our, our partnerships with many of the big global brands that we work with. Right. And so, you know, so it seems like, you know, automation, uh, technology are big, um, you know, benefits to your customers. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about AI. Um, you know, if, if you can put AI in your next uh, 10K, you know, you might uh, increase your uh, your multiple turns a couple times. How, how are how are you... How is GXO leveraging AI um, to not, not only help its customers be more profitable, but to help GXO to be more profitable? I mean, what AI does for us is it improves the productivity of a lot of the automation and the hardware that we're putting into the warehouse. We've been piloting a number of AI-driven improvements for the past few years, and, and, and let me walk you through uh, one example. Um, we've piloted a robotic packing arm for a direct-to-consumer customer, um, which, when we were using the OEM control systems, was delivering a, a pack rate of around uh, 400 units per hour, uh, and it was able to cope with around 70% of our customers' SKU range. By deploying an AI overlay on top of that, helping this robotic packing arm to have a greater series of recognition of the product that with which it's got to pack going forward, it's helped us to take the pack rate basically double to around 800 units per hour, and it's taken the number of SKUs or the, or the SKU percentage that it can cope with up pretty close towards uh, 90%. So for us, what that's helped to drive is a tremendous improvement on the return on investment for the automation that we're putting in place. That's great for our customers, 
clearly it drives the productivity within the warehouse solution, but it also is good for new customers who are contemplating going down the route of deploying bigger automation or robotics. So we've got numerous examples where we have been piloting AI and, and it's really driven quite a significant improvement in the performance of the technology that we have been historically deploying. So it's a very exciting time in terms of AI in the warehouse environment and watch this space. There'll be lots to follow going forward. I certainly expect that to be true. Um, you know, when you guys are, so when you're looking at different ROIs and margins, are they different for higher tech facilities versus um, less automated facilities? From yes. a GXO standpoint? Absolutely. So, Lee, if you look around uh, our uh, margin structure for more automated facilities, typically it's somewhere between two to 400 basis points higher than for a more manual activity. We're driving more value for the customer, we're participating in that upside, and it becomes a much more strategic relationship um, right. with the overall or customer. Um, similarly, when we're dealing with returns and reverse logistics, we also have a higher margin structure. So what we're increasingly seeing is more and more companies look at that warehouse through a more strategic lens and saying it's time to automate, it's time to drive the operational and indeed uh, uh, consumer uh, or end customer type of uh, uh, benefits that many of our, our customers, uh, our peers have uh, and looking to GXO to help partner and, and digitalize that warehouse environment. Can, can, are you able to quantify what percentage of your business is reverse logistics? Yeah, it's a very high single-digit percentage of our business, Lee. It is growing quite significantly faster than the group average as a whole. Uh, and if you look at what reverse logistics really means for customers, it can really drive and have a very significant gross profit impact. So if you consider around certain verticals, um, you see 25% of return product go to landfill. Last year, GXO helped our customers to resell 96% of product. So wow. where we're able to do that, that drives a, a, a new revenue stream, a significant profit stream from product that was previously returned. But furthermore, we're also doing it at a speed and a cadence that helps to drive up the probability of a full price sale. Um, so historically, when you take over reverse logistics facilities, you'll find that a number of customers haven't really looked at dealing with the return product for weeks and in some instances months. And inevitably, it's out of season and has to be discounted. Where we're able to take that return product and make it available for resale within 24 hours, that drives up the probability of a full price sale. So yes, it has a, a significant improvement on our customers' revenue uh, and indeed gross profit it also helps to serve the next consumer so you've got very limited stockouts as a result of that returns activity and don't forget in a direct-to-consumer world now we are seeing about a third of what goes out of the warehouse typically be returned so it's a very material part of inventory that we help to get back into a resellable condition for our customers where it's not resellable we, make, we, we, we try to salvage, we try to repair, we try to clean so that it can become, if you like, an A-grade product that can be, that can be delivered into stock to service that, that next consumer. And increasingly, whereas customers are focusing more on efficiency, they're focusing more on using working capital, this is why they're, they're looking to GXO to really drive a significant benefit for them. And, and, and this is our heartland strength. We uh, recently took over a customer that wouldn't 
touch a return product unless it had a, a selling price point of north of $30. We've now, through our processes and technologies, taken that down so that it is a profitable sale for them at $7. That company encompasses almost all of their SKU range now and, and, is, and has really helped to drive many tens of millions of dollars improvement in their gross profit and, and, uh, uh, from that. Right. So, you know, um, I, I'm sure you guys are looking towards growth. Uh, you're benefiting from the contract, the contract logistics market growing. Um, is it growing? Is it growing more than the global economy, the contract logistics market? And then when GXO is looking to take advantage of that growth, are there certain regions or verticals that are more attractive or higher growth for GXO? Sure. So, Lee, you're absolutely right. On the whole, the global contract logistics market is growing a little bit faster than the economy. And there's a couple of tailwinds to that. Firstly, as our customers move more direct to consumer, the amount of work per product goes up pretty significantly. An awful lot of what was done in store is now being done in the warehouse. So we see a, a shift as a result of that. There's also a tailwind coming through from increasing amounts of onshoring activity. That helps us. Our footprint is largely North America uh, and across Europe, so we're a natural beneficiary uh, from that. And then lastly, we're seeing our market become much more outsourced. So roughly two-thirds of our industry is companies or customers doing it themselves in-house. As they right. embrace the need for technology, that's not their wheelhouse strength. They're leaders in manufacturing, marketing, designing products, not in running warehouses. And so more of this industry is, is moving towards an outsourced proportion. And that's why for the industry as a whole, it will outpace GDP growth. We are outpacing industry growth. We're gaining share within this because of our leadership in the, in the deployment of the technologies that can make a real significant difference for our customers. So we're taking a greater share of that first time outsourcing activity. And then we're also taking share from what is a very fragmented industry from the long tail of smaller, more regional type competitors as customers are looking to work with a partner across more and more regions. So over 80% of our revenues today comes through from customers who work with us in more than one site. And that, that's a, a good indication of how we're growing with these customers across their footprint. Can you, can you talk about your pipeline and, and how that's been building over time? Yeah, sure. So exiting the second quarterly, we had a, a $2 billion, uh, what we call just over $2 billion pipeline. Um, that is where we have formally responded to an RFP. So there's a, a formal process. Uh, we disclose that number quarterly uh, to the market. We have a pre-pipeline, which is uh, very significant too. And, and if you look at those, both those activities, they've been showing a good upward momentum year over year through the second uh, uh, quarter. Our pipeline turns over a couple of times a year and from that we, we've driven some really quite phenomenal win. The second quarter this year was our largest ever quarter for new contract wins, including our largest ever uh, uh, revenue contract that we picked up uh, in the UK with, with Sainsbury's. So what we're seeing in that pipeline is a lot of opportunities to continue to expand with our existing customers, a lot of opportunities from companies looking to drive the benefits of outsourcing through efficiencies to allow them to reinvest back into their business or a consumer proposition. And a lot of companies who are looking at their existing relationship with a 3PL and saying, I'm not sure they're the partner for me to go to a more digital environment. I'm going to go with a more predictable solution, such as with GXO. 
And, and on the pipeline that you mentioned, do you guys break it out by region or by vertical? We, we don't. But what we have seen of late, Lee, is quite a lot more activity coming in to the food services business. So that's one of the areas that we have highlighted that we're seeing quite a bit more activity. Um, that is coming through from beverage companies. It's coming through from the traditional food services business. And I think in that kind of post-COVID new world, they're now looking at their supply chains with the sort of scrutiny that we've seen from a lot of sectors. If you look at our pipeline of opportunities, continues to remain strongly weighted to our heartland areas of strength. So that's omnichannel retail, e-commerce, consumer technology, food and beverage, and, and consumer packaged goods type activities. So uh, we're seeing, uh, yes, lot, lots of exciting opportunities. And what we have seen too is a couple of those big global leaders push more for growing their addressable markets. What do I mean by that? So it's US companies looking to expand and put more infrastructure down in Europe to service European companies or European consumers and European companies looking to do likewise in the US to really try and reinforce their, their branding and reinforce their, their leadership in some of the verticals that, that they operate in. So you guys are on, on the front lines of the, the economy given the different industries that you serve, uh, you know, you're doing direct to consumer deliveries or, or shipments out of, of your facilities and, and, and B2B uh, shipments. Do you do you have roughly a split of what that business is of direct to consumer and then I guess everything else? Yeah. So if you look at our, our, our revenue structure in the second quarter, Lee, we had just over 40 percent of our revenues coming through from omnichannel retail and just over 10 percent coming through from technology and kind of consumer package of goods verticals. So over half our revenues comes through from consumer focused verticals. Some is e-commerce, some is traditional retail, some is in, indeed wholesale. So um, yeah, we have a, a, a reasonably decent eye as to what's going on globally with, uh, uh, with the consumer. Yeah, so I guess on that, in that vein, what is where what's your assessment i guess of the of the economy i don't know if it's from a global perspective or a regional perspective by what your customers are telling you so i mean we, we can see the volume so we get we get a, quite a, a decent glimpse as to what's going on in volumes but let's be clear here that doesn't always give you the full story because revenue is priced sure. on volume uh, and the pricing uh, we've certainly seen through 2023 customers really try to focus on holding price, going for more price, uh, higher, higher profit per unit. Uh, and that, that's been very much at the expense of discounting type activities. Uh, if we look across our footprint in, in North America, uh, certainly the second quarter relative to the first quarter, we saw a deterioration in some of the consumer focused uh, industries and, and verticals that we see. A tremendous bifurcation though, Lee, between uh, different brands, even within this, the same vertical, we would certainly highlight is that the, the very higher end brands are outperforming some of the more generic brands. And, and, and I suspect that that is the high end consumer continuing to outperform the low end consumer who has faced a lot more share or pressure in terms of wallet uh, at the lower end. Um, if we look across continental Europe, that's been our standout positive business through the first half of of this year, we're very fortunate to work with some phenomenal customers, leaders in their sectors who are outperforming the overall industry. But two, I think there's also a bit of a, an annual comp effect, whereas 
the European consumer last year was a little bit weaker in, in trend in the wake of the Ukraine invasion, we're now seeing them, if you like, exhibit a little bit more confidence. Uh, the UK for us, that's been pretty weak uh, since late in the second half of, of last year and has been kind of bouncing along the bottom. There's one or two indications that things might be getting a little bit better, but on the whole, uh, bouncing along the bottom still feels kind of the, the right way to, th to think about the UK right now. Right. And can you do you have any insights about peak season from your direct to consumer clients? If we if we look across uh, a number of the kind of retail companies that have been reporting recently, they've, they've on the whole had a, a relatively kind of uninspiring summer, and, and there's not been a great sense that uh, they're expecting a tremendous improvement coming through in that overall peak season. If you look last year, we saw what was probably one of the flattest peak seasons uh, that we can remember. Um, customers were much more focused on pricing, less focused on, on volumes. At this juncture, there doesn't appear to be a material step up in, in discounting activity. So it would appear that customers are very focused on driving price per unit, um, as opposed to tremendous, huge volumes of, of, of sale. Um, and we'll work to make our customers as efficient as possible through this peak season. And there will be a peak season. It's just a question of what shape uh, uh, it ends up being. And you, you mentioned earlier the contract logistics market being a fragmented market um, and you're a major player in that market. Um, is there uh, the ability to grow through M&A or are you looking to grow just organically and does the company have a history of growing through M&A? So Lee, our focus will always be organic growth. Um, we run our business for revenue growth. We run it for return on invested capital. And if you look consistently since the spin from XPO, we've been delivering a 30 plus percent return on invested capital. Um, we think that that's great for our shareholders, great for all our stakeholders, and that will be our, our number one priority. You are right. We have undertaken a couple of tuck-in acquisitions. Most recently, we acquired uh, PFS Web here in the US. Um, that is a, a company with which we're super excited to really accelerate and help to drive their business forward on a, on a more global uh, type of operation. Our M&A will really be focused on trying to help drive shareholder value by unlocking opportunities in new verticals, win new processes or technologies, or potentially uh, in geographies where we might need a little bit of a leg up to grow. It's not going to be a core part of our business. We will always focus on organic revenue growth. Um, that's the biggest driver of shareholder value for us going forward. Um, but there are a number of opportunities in this fragmented industry that we could uh, uh, look at going forward. Um, but it's, it's, it's to drive an opportunity to accelerate growth going forward. Let me let me give you one example. We, uh, in the first quarter of 2021, uh, closed an acquisition in the UK, which brought uh, a couple of hundred million dollars of revenues in a technology activity, and also great exposure in a food and beverage uh, and uh, food services activity. The technology vertical, we have already more than doubled the revenues that we've acquired through new contract wins. That's bringing in the business, giving it access to GXOs, scale, giving access to our best-in-class technologies and helping them to drive a greater opportunity for more customers more broadly. And that's the sort of focus of, of, of M&A. We don't need to buy revenues. 
We've delivered right. two years of 15% organic revenue growth. We've just come off the back of our biggest ever quarter of new contract wins. We're gaining share in this industry. Okay. And so since the focus is going to be organic, you know, I'm just curious, you know, once you sign an agreement with the shipper, how long does it take to get a facility, an average facility? Because obviously it's going to differ depending on how automated uh, the facility is. How long does it take a facility to get up and running once an agreement is signed? It, it can it can vary significantly, Lee, but on average, you should assume somewhere between kind of six to 12 months uh, gestation. Um, if it is a, a greenfield bespoke solution, heavily automated with the warehouse effectively built around the automation, then that can be longer. We've won contracts where we're not going to be booking revenues recently until 2025. So that helps to give us tremendous visibility in terms of our growth for forward years. Similarly, however, if you look at one of our big contract wins we announced in the second quarter, um, we're live on some of those already. That is a first time outsourcing where you just take over an existing site with people in it and you just agree a transfer date to you. So it, it, it can vary significantly, but on average, you should assume somewhere between the kind of six and 12 months, there will be outliers. And for facilities, does GXO own or lease the facilities? Do the customers own or lease the facilities? And that's of course, assuming one customer in one facility. Um, we, uh, you're absolutely right. We, we focus on bespoke solutions uh, for our customers. If you look, for us, that's the vast majority of our activities. We've got a very exciting, fast-growing, more multi-tenanted solution uh, called GXO Direct. But our, our core business has been a bespoke solution where we match coterminous, the lease for a site to the contracts. If you remember, we on average operate a, a five-year uh, contract. We operate under a, a series of different contracts. There will be some contracts with a customer will retain the lease. There are some contracts where we will take the lease, but again, aim to match that coterminous with our uh, contracts. And for us, rent is a pass-through cost to the customer. Okay. And, you know, from a competition standpoint, when you're looking at like more direct to consumer uh, facilities, is, is Amazon a competitor of GXO? Lee, I think, I think the way to think about Amazon really is what, what, it, what it does is it raises and, and sets an elevated expectation for the consumer. Um, we're all used to in a world of, of Amazon Prime having super fast deliveries and, and seamless returns of products. And, and what that means for GXO is that we've got to help our customers to really deliver that best in class uh, experience. Um, they're a great company. They've really driven a phenomenal uh, marketplace activity. A lot of our customers are seeking to replicate that in in their own uh, environment. Okay, and so you know we we kind of mentioned a couple times in the conversation that GXO spun out of XPO. Um, can you talk about GXO, where it began, you know, kind of the genesis of of, of GXO and why it was spun out and maybe what that process was like? Yeah, so uh, if you, our chairman, Brad Jacobs, uh, uh, created XPO uh, through a series I've of- I've heard of them. <laughs> and, and most people have, and uh, everyone is very <laughs> excited to see what his new venture is too. So, so, so Brad created XPO, um, and in essence, it was a roll up of a number of different uh, uh, 
freight and warehouse companies across the US uh, and, in, and indeed Europe. Brad is a very shareholder value focused uh, executive and has delivered historically phenomenal returns for his shareholder and he's a great chairman for GXO. Uh, Brad very quickly appreciated that they got to a stage where GXO was underappreciated within XPO. It was about a third of the overall uh, 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 group revenues and was uh, garnered very limited attention. So uh, uh, highlighted that, uh, that there was a great standalone story for GXO, but also an opportunity to drive value for XPO shareholders as a result. So we went through a spin process um, uh, as you can see, in, in, from that process, it's been very successful in delivering shareholder value for uh, XPO and indeed for, for GXO shareholders uh, uh, through that process. Um, and it helped to really shine a light on our business. We're quite different to XPO. We're long duration contracts. It's not a transactional type model. We have strong structural growth tailwinds be it through e-com, be it through returns, be it through the need for automation, be it through kind of the outsourcing opportunity, we, we were, which were heavily overlooked within that slightly more conglomerate structure from XPO. We've also accelerated, if you like, the GXO transformation. We've driven a productivity initiatives. We expect to yield $60 million out to 2027. We've also accelerated our like holistic approach to working with our customers on a more global basis so it's really benefited both both shareholders and, and uh, brad's uh, uh, spin processes has, 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 has really kind of highlighted the benefits uh, that gxo can bring uh, for equity shareholders and the shareholders that your typical gxo shareholder are they much different than the shareholder of xpo like does does a gxo shareholder look for something different that maybe when it was a conglomerate? Yeah, it is. I mean, it goes back to your first question, Lee. In essence, we're providing a service. So we're like a business services organization, that we, but we sit within the transportation sector. We don't have, I feel like, significant margin volatility. We're very predictable. Uh, business. That's the nature of the contracts that we operate. You can see that from our, our recent second quarter results, uh, that uh, uh, there's a very predictable profit stream that comes out of our uh, operations. Um, and so, yes, as a result of that, you've seen, uh, if you like, a, a gentle gyration away from some of those more transactional, cyclical type of shareholders towards those that are looking for a, a structural growth story, a compounding growth story, because as we highlighted in our investor day back in, in January of this year, uh, we expect to deliver around 10% average organic revenue growth out to 2027. Okay. And, you know, you, you also put out some uh, 2027 financial targets. Um, uh, has anything changed since since you initially provided those? Is I, I'm assuming you're still on, on the glide path to those targets? We've uh, we've just come off the back of our biggest ever uh, quarterly contract win, so we're in a, we're in a good position to continue to deliver uh, on those targets. And look, as our recent results have highlighted, we're delivering on our EBITDA promises, the productivity initiatives, both within GXO and as a result of our Clipper integration, continue to to deliver the results uh, as we've highlighted, um, and we can deliver strong cash flow growth. So um, we're in a we're in a great position. This is a very very strong environment for companies 
helping our cut, helping customers to drive cost out. Uh, there's, as you can imagine, in this environment, a lot of companies looking at their supply chain, looking at their warehousing, and the largest source of growth will always be driven from new contracts. And, and the second quarter was a point in proof that we're this environment can be very helpful for GXO to to grow its contract base. Right. And, you know, so you're the the chief uh, strategy officer at GXO. A lot of listeners really might not know what that entails. Can you talk about what a CSO does and kind of your transition from from, uh, a Wall Street analyst to corporate America has been like? It's been fantastic, honestly, Lee. I've, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed every moment of this. So GXO is a business that really is trying to drive as much value for its shareholders as possible. And so looking at all of our opportunities through a lens of, of, of more public market scrutiny, which is, as you highlight, my, my background ha- has been great. We have some phenomenal growth opportunities ahead of us. We can invest organically, we can invest inorganically. And what we're always going to try to do is think like an owner and to drive as much value for our shareholders as possible. And, that, and that's my role within the company. All right. And then where, where are you based? Are you based in London or Greenwich? Where, where are you based? I'm based out of London. So uh, we, we have a, a, an office in London. If you look at our geographic footprint, Lee, we're about a third North America. We're about a third continental Europe and about a third in the UK. Um, so we have a, a decent presence across all of the, all of the key regions that we operate in. All right. Do you have a favorite uh, restaurant in, L- in London? <laughs> That's a really, really good question. I mean, uh, it, it's, it's a restaurant that my kids will always uh, enjoy. So uh, we're blessed in London with having some phenomenal uh, Italian restaurants, and, and that's always a favourite with the kids. So uh, around in Soho, there's, there's there's quite a lot of very good Italian restaurants to choose from. All right, great. Um, well, I think we're going to wrap it up here. I just want to thank everyone for tuning in. If you like the episode, please subscribe and leave a review. We've lined up a number of great guests for the podcast. Check back and hear conversations with C-suite executives from Canadian National, CSX, Werner, ArcBest, Starbulk, Pam Transports, and Scorpio Tankers, just to name a few. Also, if you have any ideas for future episodes, please hit me up on the terminal or on Twitter at uh, Logistics Lee. Uh, I just want to thank Neil for joining us today. Lee, thank you so much for inviting us onto your podcast. It's been a pleasure. Enjoy the conversation. Take care. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.